Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Every, every time I, I speak, uh, no matter where, when, and how, I'm always mindful that um, when that cult that was carrying Jesus into Jerusalem and all those people were screaming Hosanna, laying down palms and everything else, if that cult for one minute, minute thought that that was for him, he would have been surely mistaken. And so I want to give it up for Jesus because he's the one who died for us. I'm just that cult. I'm just trying to do what God has called me to do to the grace that he's given me, his enabling power. And so um, it's, it's an honor to be here with you guys today as Pastor Brandon travels. Um, I love your pastor. Uh, I love what him and his wife Ty are doing here in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy. Uh, I grew up in Bed-Stuy. Uh, I grew up not too far from here. So back in the days, we called it do or die. <laughs> and so that, that was years ago, trust me. And so, um, but, you know, what's going on here, what God is doing in this local body, um, I want to encourage you. You know, Pastor Tim was talking about small groups. And it's so important that you come together in these small groups. And the reason I say that is because no one is an island unto themselves. You know, we need one another. We need to pray one for another. The Bible says that. In Acts 2, it says that all the believers were in one heart, one mind, sharing in their belongings so that no one went in need. That is so important. Even Jesus, as I shared, even Jesus had to assemble 12 guys and say what you want about Judas, but he played his part well. But he needed 12 guys to launch the ministry that he wanted to launch while he was here on earth. And so him who knew no sin, needed 12 men to be around him, how much more us who were born in iniquity, born in sin, how much more do we need one another to be able to fight the good fight of faith, to be able to run this race, the course that God has laid out for each and every one of us in such a way that we can accomplish the the, the goals that he has for us. And so we need one another. You know, we need one another. When we isolate ourselves, and this is just, this is kind of leading into what when we isolate ourselves, we fall into the hand of the, the enemy. Why? Because he's a ferocious lion. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy whatever God has for us. And if you've ever watched the hunting habits of big game cats, they separate you from the pack. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to separate us. He wants us to feel that it's only us who are facing these challenges. And when you get into small groups and you start sharing with one another, you go, it's not only me. It's not only me. So now I can pray with someone because I realize that I'm not the only one who is being tempted in this way. I'm not the only one who is afraid of something. I'm not the only one who's walking around somewhat anxious. And I love uh, what James says. Um, and uh, James 5, 16, uh, B, because everyone quotes that, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much, right? And, and that's true. 
But when I ask most people, what does part A says, because that's only part B, they don't know. And it says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. Then when you are healed, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So it's something about confessing where we are with one another. It's something about praying with one another removes the blockage that's keeping us from connecting with God vertically. Healing takes place so that our prayers become fervent and powerful to the movement of God's hand. So we need one another. So I want to encourage you. If I haven't done a good job of selling it, I'm going to keep selling it. Get in small groups. Because I believe that that's, that's where you begin to develop community. You begin to forge relationships. Forge. You know, it's a difference. That's a term that's used for metal. Because forged metal is much more denser than uh, molded metal. Why? Because forged, you got to hammer that thing into shape. And some of us know we need some hammering. <laughs> Listen, you know, truth be told, that's between you and God. But we all need some hammering in some areas so he can toughen us up and get us prepared for the fight. You know, yep, been married 20 years. Praise God. Uh, May 15th. 1999, I got engaged. Guys, this is for the brothers who are married, the guys who are looking at dating. Always remember dates. Well, let me tell you. Always remember dates. My nephew, Kevin, is here. He would tell you. I would always tell him, always remember the dates, bro. They they make deposits for you. (laughs) November 26, 1998 is when I got engaged. 20 years, and it's been great. It doesn't feel like 20 years to me because God has been so great to us. Has it been ups and downs? Has there been challenges? Yes, it's like any marriage, but it's worth the fight. So if you walked in here today and you might be saying, man, you know what? I don't think my wife and I or my husband and I, we're going to fight the good fight of faith because God put you together. He'll give you the grace to get through it. That's just as a sidebar. That has nothing to do with my message. But God will get you through it. For you single brothers and sisters, this is a sidebar. <laughs> Got a little sidebars. I'm taking a little liberty. Is that all right, Sister Ty? Okay. Another sidebar, because now I'm looking at the countdown. I'll get to my message. I'll make this one quick. I was talking to a, a sister the other day, uh, a couple of months back, and she was saying how she had the perfect job. She thought it was great for getting married and everything else. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to her. And I said, okay, so let me ask you this. Why do you, what, what are you looking for in a guy? And she says, well, you know, he has to, you know, he has to love the Lord, you know, and all these, you know, she was telling him all these things. And I said, okay, so in other words, he has to be a Christian. Okay. Yes. Okay. By default. I said, so why does he have to be a Christian? She says, well, how can two walk together unless they agree? I go, no, that's great. That's biblical. I agree. How can two walk together unless they agree? But why does he have to be a Christian? And she goes, well, so we can read the Bible together. We can study together. We can pray together and everything else. I said, that is great. I get it. I'm with you on that. I am totally with you on that. But why does he have to be a Christian? She looked at me. And I said, can I say something to you so you can take the strain off your face? This is not a trick question. It's it's not a trick question. I'm just asking you, why do you believe he has to be a Christian? And she said, I gave you all I got. (laughs) 
True story. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. I began to say to her, I said, here's why you want him to be a Christian. Because if God said you were fearfully, wonderfully made, he knew you were being developed in your mother's womb, then who knows you better than God? Who knows you better than God? So if he or she doesn't have a solid vertical relationship with God, God could never give them the capacity to love you the way he knows you need to be loved. He wants to download that into that man, into that woman, because he knows exactly what you need to feel that you're loved. And so if that relationship isn't solid, you're only going to get what's good. You want God's best in your relationship. You don't want good. Anyone can manufacture good from a, a human perspective. You want what God has for you. You want the very best. And so that's why I believe you want a Christian man or Christian woman in your life because God is going to look out for you if they're solid, they have a solid relationship Amen. through the trials and tribulations. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a challenge, but that's what it's all about. It's worth it. It's worth it. Trust me. I wanted to share with you because I believe that what I'm going to share is for anyone who is new in the Lord. You may be walking with the Lord for five years, 10 years, whatever that looks like for you. I always want to encourage people to continue to fight and live a worry a way that God would be happy with it. And I think one of the passages of scriptures, which is found in Philippians, is Paul's writing to the Philippian church and he's encouraging them. And, and you know, most commentators call this his swan letter because it's one of those letters where you don't see a lot of correction. You don't see a lot of you're doing this like the Galatians and who deceived you and the Corinthians, you know, uh, how he had to write them four times. We only have two of those letters, but he had to write those guys four times. How jacked up are you that he had to write you four times? But that just tells us how bad we can be. Right. And so I love the book of Philippians, the, the, the epistle of Philippians, because Paul opens up that letter with every time I think of you. I rem every time I remember you, I thank God for you. Now, some of you may not know how that letter came about, how that church was formed. But if you go to the, the book of Acts, chapter 16, in Acts 16, Paul is now getting ready to go on his second missionary journey. He's assembling a new team, right? And so he's taking on Silas. He just added Timothy to the, 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 the fold of the team. And what's happening is now they want to go to Asia Minor. But the Spirit of God says no. The Bible says that the Spirit forbidded them to go. Then they want to go to Bethany. Spirit forbid, forbidded them from going there. And so that tells me that sometimes we're getting involved in things that God doesn't want us to be involved in. Because these men were going to do something good. They were going to spread the gospel. But it says the Spirit of God told them no. And they were obedient. But Paul got a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come here and help us. And so Paul believed with the rest of the team that that's where we should go. So they went to Macedonia. From Macedonia, they went to a province within Macedonia called Philippi, Philippians. And while they're there, they're walking around and there's this servant girl, a slave. She's like a seer, a fortune teller. And what's happening is, is that she begins to follow Paul and Silas and the team around. And she's screaming out, these are the men of the most high. And at some point, Paul got tired of it and just said, be quiet. And she lost her gift. But what happened was, 
Her owners could no longer make money off of her because she lost the gift to tell fortunes. So they turned the city into an uproar. And what happens is Paul and Silas are dragged into prison. They're beaten, thrown into stocks. And then we, all, we get that verse that everyone always quotes. And at midnight, Paul and Silas begin to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, think about it. I'm just going to be honest with you. When I would think about Philippi, I would think about that beating I took. But Paul thinks about Philippi and he thanks God for what came out of that, which tells me that sometimes we're going to all have to go through some level of suffering. We're going to have to see God's accomplishment, his goal, his end plan accomplished. And so we thank God for that. Why? Because Paul says, I thank God every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Even though I took that beating, even though I was thrown into prison. And here's another thing. Lydia, who was the merchant woman who sold purple clothing that they first met and they started staying at her house. And that jailer who was about to kill himself because he thought they got away. They probably were the core of the church in Philippi. They probably were the core of the church in Philippi that Paul started there. And so he goes on to encourage them. And I just want to read from Philippians 3, 12 through 14. And he says this, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of. Paul says, I'm pressing on through all the struggles, through the temptations, through all the things that might be coming at me right now, we need to press on. Sin, whatever that sin is, we need to press on. We need to take hold of God. Whatever the fears and anxieties are, right? Paul says, I need to press on because Paul had to have some anxieties. Why? Because he was being chased down, beaten. He had to have some fears about what was going on. But Paul says, I, I, I'm going to press on through those things. I, I'm pressing on. And so what does that mean to us? That whatever sins we have, trust me, God will give you the grace to get over it. You know, there's a saying that I always say at our men's meetings, um, because I'm over the men's ministry there. I always say to the guys, I say, are you struggling or are you snuggling? Because there's a difference. I can see if you're struggling with something, but when you're snuggling, getting cozy with it, there's where the problem lies because you become callous to the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. You no longer feel convicted about what you're doing. And those things can happen to us if we're not pressing on, if we're not keeping our eyes of our heart focused on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we have to Continue to press on. But he says this. He says, not that I have laid hold of it yet. 
No, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I have, which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying this, and this is something for all of us. There's a reason why we came to our faith in Christ. God has a plan and purpose for each and every one of us. So Paul says, not that I have laid hold of that. Now, mind you, Paul is writing this from a prison. He's already set up the churches. He's writing to encourage them. But Paul is in the mindset that, you know what? There's still so much more for me to do. I haven't even laid hold of his purposes, which he has laid hold of me because Paul was saved for a reason. And it's testified about in Acts 20, Acts, in, in Acts. And, and here's what it says in Acts 9. When he had his Damascus Road encounter, Jesus says this to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Jesus has already mapped out Paul is going to suffer. Great harm, great things. That was the thing. So let me say this to you. That might not be your story. That might not be yours. But each of us have had our own Damascus Road encounter with the Lord. We may not have been on a horse, but whatever it is, we came to a place where we came to the end of ourselves and there was a fork in the road. And we realized that I can either continue to live the life I'm living and feeling empty, or I can go down the road and live the life that Christ offers where I can be liberated and get out of this bondage. But when we go down that road, Jesus takes hold of us, and our responsibility is to take hold of what he has for us, and that is whatever gifts and talents and passions that he's given us, we're supposed to use those things now for his glory and for his honor. That's what he's called us to do. He doesn't want us sitting on the sidelines. As I shared with the church, I played sports my whole life, so I will revert to some sports vernacular. But he doesn't want us sitting on the sideline. He wants us in the game. See, there's no sideline with Jesus. There's no complacency. There's no retirement plan. So if any of you were thinking about retiring with Jesus on this side of eternity, doesn't work. Wherever you are in life, as long as you're on this side of eternity, you still have breath in your lungs. There's something that Jesus can use you for in this side of eternity. So there's never a retirement plan with him. And so Paul says, I want to take hold of that, which is already taken hold of me. In verse 13, he says this, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. The biggest skeptic in the Bible, in the New Testament, was the Apostle Paul. He was such a big skeptic, if you know his life, he's the one who persecuted the church. How big a skeptic is that? The guy is going around killing people, throwing people in prison and everything else. But he had his own encounter, came to Jesus. Can you imagine if Paul allowed himself to continue to be condemned by his past actions, how it would have changed the trajectory of his life? He wouldn't have been able to do the ministry that God has called him to do. And why do I say that? Because a lot of us 
are sitting here today condemning ourselves for things we've done in the past when God is saying, no, when you came to me, I liberated you. I've forgiven you. I've washed it. As far as the east is from the west, I remember your sins no more. Now let's move forward. Forget those things from your past. Don't let the devil continue to bring them up in your mind. You don't play them as a rerun in your mind. He's saying, no, forget those things. Paul is saying, no, no, I no longer live there. Yes, I did that. I know my path. And could you imagine when Barnabas came to get Paul to take him to Antioch? Because those were some of the people he persecuted. If he would have said, no, I can't go to Antioch. I can't do it. You know, I persecuted those people. They're not going to listen to me. But because he was so filled with the Holy Spirit, he went there and he ministered there. And then he was sent out from there to start their first missionary journey. So we have to forget and leave those things to the past. If you're struggling with something from your past, I encourage you, begin to bring it to the Lord. The other thing I would encourage you to do is get together, get some strong spiritual sisters and some strong spiritual brothers for the men around you so that they can help you work through these things because you're not going to conquer them on your own. You won't. We're not designed that way. We need one another. But Paul didn't stop there because he says, leaving those things behind. So there's two sides to that coin. There's a success side. Because Paul, who was setting up all these churches, going on all these missionary journeys and everything else, he could have easily said, you know what? I've done enough for the Lord. I'm going to put this thing in cruise control. I'm going to sit back and just look at all the work I've done. Let's go, Paul, you didn't do bad. You didn't do bad at all. No, Paul knew that there was more for him to do. That's why he's writing this letter saying, no, 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 no. Listen, guys, even though I'm in prison, there's stuff to do. Hey, listen, I know there's more that God has. I'm not going to sit back on my past successes. And so what happens is a lot of times we'll see God do some amazing things in us and through us. And we go, okay, that's it. I've reached the mountaintop. No need to go further. I've done it all. Just take me to heaven. And God is going, no, 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 you're not going to heaven yet. You got more to do down there. And we lose focus. As long as we're on this side of eternity, no matter what blessings, no matter how God uses us, no matter what he does in our lives and through our lives, there is still more things for him to do in us and through us. Why? Because the Bible says he takes us from glory to glory to glory to glory. Why? Because it's never going to stop until we get to the other side. Why? Because Right now, we see very dimly. It's not until we see him, we'll see fully. See, God is looking at this from 35,000 feet. We're looking at it from 2,000 feet. So he sees the end. He knows what he has for us. We just have to take hold of that. We just have to take hold of that. So Paul says, I'm forgetting all the past, but I'm pressing on. I am pressing on. Because Paul knew that there was so much more for him to do. I love the fact that in Acts 20, Paul has already had this encounter where he realizes that once he gets to Rome, his ministry is going to be done. Paul is going to go off the scene. But before he goes there, he goes back to meet with the elders from Ephesus. Why? Because that's the place he stayed the longest. And that's captured by Luke in that encounter that he had in Ephesus. 
all the churches that he set up and everything else. Here's what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And I love this. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is getting ready to go and face unspeakable torture. And he says, no, no, I I still got to finish my course. I I still got to finish my course. There's a course that God has mapped out for me. I still got to finish it. And the thing is, is that we must complete the course. We must continue to run because Paul comes in the final verse. He says, my goal. He says this. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He says, I press on. There's a difference between what his goal was and knowing what the prize was. It's a huge difference. While Paul was here, his goal was to live a life pleasing to God, accomplishing what God had for his life, doing the things that God has called him to do over great obstacles, Whatever was facing him, Paul knew that was his goal, to accomplish what God's plans and purposes for his own individual life. And so God has a plan and a purpose for my brother's here life, for my sister's here life, for this couple's life. He has a plan and a purpose individually and corporately. There's something God wants to do in your life, in your marriage. You guys are married? I'm speaking it into existence, engaged. <laughs> Engaged. He wants to do something. Why? Because your marriage is the very emblem, uh, image of Christ in his church. He wants your marriage to be the very image to this world that is dark, that's fighting against marriage. He wants your marriage to stand for that. God has a plan for Pastor Tim. He still wants to do stuff in his life and through his life. He's not finished with you, Pastor Tim. Trust me. He has so much more for you to do. For all of us. I got my spiritual daughter here, Lisa, who's a member here. She knows how much I love her. And I tell her all the time, God has something for her to do. There's never a chance, a place for complacency. So Paul says, I press on. I press on for the goal. But here's the prize. The prize is to see Jesus face to face. That's why we live the way we live. Because ultimately, we want to see Jesus face to face. See, he's given us that promise that he's going to come back. And he's going to redeem us. And he's going to, we're going to spend eternity with him. You know, I love the fact when uh, Sister uh, Todd was reading from 1 Corinthians 13. You know, isn't it interesting that Paul says, and these three things we still have, love, hope, no, uh, uh, um, faith, hope, and love. Isn't it interesting that he said all the other things will pass away, but love will last forever? Because when Jesus comes back, I don't have to hope about it anymore. I don't have to hope about it anymore. My faith has been answered when he comes back. This is going to be a love fest. And yeah, I'm just like you. I have questions 
about some things that have taken place here on earth. But I believe that I'm going to forget all those questions once I see him face to face. I believe that. I just really believe that, that I'm going to forget all the questions that I might have developed in my my head, written down on paper. Like, man, okay, God, help me out here. I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not the the dullest. Help help me understand this. There's questions. We all have questions. But ultimately, we want to see him face to face. We are not going after a prize that's going to wither away. We're not looking for a reef. We're not looking for a medal that's going to rust one day. We're looking towards eternity. Josh, if you can come and begin to play. Because the blessings of everlasting life, such as perfect wisdom, joy, holiness, peace, fellowship, all enjoy to the glory of God, to the glory of God. I want to leave you with this one thought. In the book of Acts, which I quoted for, from, towards the end of chapter 6, we hear about this young man named Stephen. He was one of the chosen deacons in the church. The only thing we know about Stephen is that he was full of the Spirit and he was doing signs and wonders. He was respected by others. And so, because the religious leaders at that time had a problem with Stephen. They grabbed him, dragged him out, began to question him. And Stephen does this great expository. He takes them all the way from Abraham, talks about Abraham, talks about Moses and their trials in the deserts and everything else. He brings them all the way to the place where he begins to say, and the Savior who you hung on a tree. Now that's in your face. He said, who you hung on a tree. He came to redeem man, in other words. And they got furious. Oh, they got furious. These guys begin to tear their clothes and everything else. And as Stephen is standing there, he looks up and he goes, I see heaven opening up. I see heaven opening up. And I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Did you guys catch that? He says, I see the Son of Man standing. Because most of the time, when you read about Jesus in the Bible, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, some of you may have, some of you may not have, but I grew up as a kid. I would always tell people I had a drug problem. My mother was always dragging us to church. I grew up in one of those Pentecostal churches. It's actually not too far from here. Where when the preacher was preaching, some people would get up and wave their handkerchief and scream hallelujah. And they would give the preacher feedback and everything else. But I'm just imagining, let's say if... This is the father seated. I'm just imagining that as Stephen is going through his exhortation, Jesus is sitting there. And he's listening to this young man, Stephen, speak truth to these religious leaders. And as he's listening to this young man speak, 
he begins to rise from his seat. And he's looking at Stephen. Now Stephen gets a glimpse of him. And Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. And he's applauding the life that Stephen has lived. As he's being stoned, he's receiving Stephen, giving him a standing ovation. Giving him a standing ovation. And here's my prayer for each and every one of us, that we will live such an exemplary life for Christ that when we see him face to face, he's going to be standing at the right hand of the Father looking to receive us, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You You may enter in. That's my prayer for each and every one of us, that as we're on this side of eternity, We live such a life that when we transition into eternity, the Son of Man is there to receive us and giving us a standing ovation. Let's bow our heads.